Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria. And I am happy to uh, share with you uh, Fulton Sheen's Catechism series. And um, again, it's been so well received by you, the listener. And I, again, thank you for all of your good words of encouragement. Uh, it's necessary today. Uh, the Catechism, uh, many of us are now kind of asking ourselves, who's teaching our children and adults catechism lessons? And uh, one thing I know for sure is that uh, Fulton Sheen is a trusted voice, especially with teaching the faith. And of course, Archbishop Sheen brought hundreds of thousands of souls to the faith. Uh, he personally oversaw convert classes, gave private instruction to Hollywood movie stars and the like, and of course, uh, wants us to learn our faith through this beautiful series he put together in the year 1965 where he recorded on vinyl 50 lessons. And so uh, we've been sharing those lessons with you, and we're on lesson number 32, where Archbishop Sheen will talk about sin and penance, uh, that beautiful sacrament that we all should, uh, you know, take part of more often than we do. And so uh, Fulton Sheen, of course, uh, preached against sin uh, for many, many years. Uh, and I'm going to share with you uh, a, a good classic recording back from the year 1944. Uh, the Second World War was on and uh, Fulton Sheen was addressing the radio audience and it was his Lenten uh, series of talks. And he talks about a group called the Sinners and he relates it to the second word our Lord spoke on the cross. Uh, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, so while I won't spoil it for you, but I will let you know that Fulton Sheen will uh, speak to us personally. And uh, sometimes we have to admit we are sinners uh, and we are guilty and we need redemption. We need forgiveness. Uh, but still, in a very sobering way, uh, Fulton Sheen will bring us, I'd like to say, into the promising promised land. <laughs> and that is, of course, heaven. And so without further ado, may I share with you again this reflection from the Catholic Hour from 1944. Uh, again, the second word to the cross, a word to sinners. Please enjoy. Since March 2nd, 1930, when the Catholic Hour was broadcast for the first time, its programs have been given under the patronage of the Blessed Mother of our Lord. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen now addresses the Catholic Hour audience. Monsignor Sheen has entitled today's talk, The Second Word to the Cross, A Word to Sinners, Monsignor Sheen. 
friends. There are two ways of coming to God. Through the preservation of innocence and through the loss of it. Some have come to God because they were good. Like Mary who was full of grace. Like Joseph the just man. Like Nathaniel in whom there was no guile. Or like John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman. But others have come to God who were bad. Like the young man of the Gerasenes, possessed of devils. Like Magdalene, out of whose corrupt soul the Lord cast seven devils. And like the thief at the right, who spoke the second word to the cross. The world loves the mediocre. The world hates the very good and the very bad. The good are a reproach to the mediocre and the evil are a disturbance. That is why Christ was crucified with thieves. This is his true position. Jesus among the worthless ones. During his life he was accused of eating and drinking with sinners and now they accuse him of dying with them. Here is the supreme instance of the right man in the right place. Christ among the bandits. The redeemer in the midst of the unredeemed. The physician among the lepers. For God does not work through culture but through grace. Thus does God show that we become great not because of what we are, but because of what he gives. God in his infinite wisdom has reached deep into the lower layers of humanity and picked out of its dregs two worthless derelicts. And he used one of them as the escort of his eternal son. At the beginning of the crucifixion, both thieves cursed and blasphemed the Savior. But suddenly the soul of one of them, the thief at the right, lighted by fires from that central cross, turned to a king who was being mocked and asked to be one of his subjects. For he said, Lord, remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. Lord. He called him Lord. A real king is so easy to approach. Remember me. There was a touch of humor in asking God to remember. God had remembered him before he was born. That is why he was immortal. God had been following his souls down the corridor of time, and now this pursued asked the pursuer to remember. When thou shalt come into thy kingdom. How did the thief know he had a kingdom? Maybe the crown of thorns spoke of a diadem, the crucifixion of a coronation, the nails of a scepter and the blood of royal purple. We can never judge people by the way they are dressed. No prayer to God is ever unanswered. And so from the central cross there flashed back, This day 
Thou shalt be with me in paradise. This day, evil has its hour, but God has his day. Thou, he calleth his sheep by name. This was the foundation of Christian democracy, the value of a person. The soul of an outcast is of such value that the eternal word addresses him in the second person singular, thou. Shalt be with me in paradise. I wonder why he said, in paradise. To be with him is paradise. The mob on Calvary asked him to come down from the cross and the thief asked to be taken up. The masses would have believed if he preached a religion without a cross. But the thief found his faith by hanging on a cross. This is the supreme instance of one bringing good out of evil. It is doubtful if the thief would have found goodness otherwise. Why is it that this thief found salvation? It can only be because the capacity for conversion is greater in the really wicked than in the self-satisfied and complacent. The very emptiness of souls of the sinners is in itself an occasion for receiving the compassion of God. Self-disgust is the beginning of conversion, for it marks the death of pride. And may it not be that the conversion of the good thief is the key to the conversion of the modern world. Men will return to God in this world, not just because they are good, but because they recognize that they are evil. In this modern day, men will come to God through evil rather than through goodness. Or shall we say, they will come to God through the devil. Countless are the instances mentioned in the gospel of those who came to God after Satan was driven out of their souls. The French revolutionist Sorel predicted that the basic problem of the 20th century would be the problem of evil. And everyone knows this is the century of evil and insanity. The 19th century foreshadowed this in one of its most outstanding writers, Dostoevsky, the Russian, who believed that the world would be saved after it had passed from Antichrist to Christ. An English philosopher in our own day makes this typical modern approach of finding God in the very midst of evil. None of the explanations given by his contemporaries concerning evil are satisfactory to him. The socialist explanation of evil in terms of economic inequality and injustice he rejects. Very aptly he says, for if poverty is the root of all evil, then money must be the source of all virtue. And then he rejects the psychological explanation of evil which attributes evil to suppressed desires and thwarted sex libidos, all of which, according to the modern mind, could be abolished by popularizing aesthetics and by extending the blessings of the machine and the ballot. And he asks himself, 
Was no rich man ever cruel? Was no unrepressed man ever tyrannical? Was no self-expressive child selfish? Evil is not merely a byproduct of unfavorable circumstances. It is so widespread and so deep-seated that one can only conclude that that which religion has taught is true, namely that evil is endemic in the heart of man. And that it is. It is in our blood. It flows through our veins. It gives life to the brain when it thinks evil. It energizes the will when it kills. It fires the muscles when it drops bombs. And it persecutes the prayerful. In the face of that evil which is endemic in the human heart, this truth finally emerges. To overcome evil, we must begin to recognize that it is evil. And there's no hope for the world until we do recognize sin is sin. There's hope for those who are deaf and who want to hear. For the lame who want to walk. There is hope for the diseased who acknowledge the need of a physician. And there is hope for a sinner who recognizes the need of a redeemer. The thief at the right conquered evil just that way. By admitting his emptiness of soul, he called upon God to save him. There's only one thing in the world that is worse than sin. And that is denying that we are sinners. And that is the tragedy of the world in which we live. It denies sin. Never before in the history of the world was there so much evil. And never before so little consciousness of it. We blame everyone except ourselves. Talk to a modern man about recognizing and reconciling his soul with God, and this is what he will say to you. What have I ever done to him? Why leave him alone? Why shouldn't he let me alone? Why does the modern man say this? Well, for the very same reason that a healthy man might say to a surgeon who wished to operate on him, there's nothing wrong with me. Leave me alone. In like manner, if you are your own law, if you set your own standards, if you are your own God, then it is nonsense to ask to be reconciled to another God. As a man gets more wicked, he understands his wickedness less and less. Just as when a man's fever climbs to a point of deliriousness, he understands his sickness less and less. He may even think himself so healthy that he wants to go to work. The more we are in sin, the less we know sin. As the sounder we are asleep, the less we know we are asleep. We have to wake up before we know we were asleep. A moderately bad man knows he is not good. A very bad man thinks he's good. When, therefore, you reach a point, when you cease calling yourself idiotic, and do not mean it, and begin to call yourself a rotter,
and really mean it, you are on the pathway of the good bandit that leads to conversion. The perception of guilt is the condition of conversion, as the perception of disease is the condition of remedy. And so long as we think we are good, we will never, never find God. If you think you know it all, how can God teach you? There's a peculiar thing about pride. We will admit we are ill-tempered or that we are intemperate. But have you ever in your life known anyone who admitted that he was proud and conceited? We all deny that we are proud. We condemn pride so very vociferously in others that we deny we've ever been guilty of it ourselves. As a matter of fact, the more conceited we are, the more we hate conceit in others. The more we say, I'm not conceited, the more we prove that we are conceited. Our pride, therefore, makes us look down on people so that we can never look up to God. And in order to look up to God, we needs must do two things. First, we must humble ourselves. And that is why Sunday after Sunday, we ask every Jew and Protestant and Catholic in our radio audience to set aside an hour a day for prayer and contemplation. I wonder how many of you are doing it. Catholics every morning should attend Mass and extend that morning Mass a half an hour and complete the Holy Hour. And then the second thing that we must do is we must live in humble service of our fellow men. And to cultivate that, we have published this little book entitled Friends, the purpose of which is to induce us to be friends with God and friends with ourselves, friends with Catholics, friends with Jews, and friends with Protestants. The very moment we stop strutting and posing and begin to see ourselves as we really are, then in our humility we shall be exalted. Let us therefore examine our conscience. Ask ourselves not how much we know, but how much we do not know. Not how good we are, but how bad we are. Let us judge ourselves not by the knowledge we possess, but by our consciences. Not by our education, but by our habits. Not by our politeness, but by our hearts. As soon as we feel a great void in our souls and realize that because of our sinning we are no longer our own, and acknowledge that we are still thirsty at the border of a well, and admit that we have played the fool, and that our follies of the years mount up in their dark arrears, then out of a dark and swampy soul we cry out with the thief, as all Catholics do when they go to confession, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I am a sinner. Such is the beginning of salvation. 
And in that beginning we say to our Lord, there are two things, dear Lord, which are not in your treasury, rich as you are. My sins and my sorrow. Make them thine. As thou didst make the sins and the sorrow of the thief thine. The thief died a thief, for he stole paradise. And if we win paradise, it will be because we are thieves too. For we will never deserve what we got, the God of everlasting love. And so, as a sinner to sinners, I say, may God have mercy on our souls. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you once again for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together and to uh, just uh, make sense of it all. And I say that in that when I listen to that last reflection, a reflection from 1944 when the Second World War was raging, and how Archbishop Sheen was able to calmly uh, bring to our intention the need for our conversion. You know, he talked about how the good thief asked for the right thing. He asked to be taken up, uh, not to be taken down. Of course, his fellow thief was saying to our blessed Lord, if you be the Christ, then take us down. Yet, the good thief was saying, Lord, remember me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And do we ask the Lord to remember us? Or are we looking for the easy way out, asking to be taken down? Again, a very thoughtful way of how Archbishop Sheen points to the cross and says there's lessons here for us to learn. You know, we all like to make excuses, uh, so many of us, <laughs> and I think we are guilty of making excuses, uh, but uh, I think Fulton Sheen's saying, I want you to own your sin, to confess your sin, and to amend your life. And, you know, I found by reading Archbishop Sheen, uh, his books, uh, they've helped me a great deal. The first book I read of Archbishop Sheen was Victory Over Vice, a book he penned in 1939. And I followed that book up with uh, reading The Seven Virtues, again, his meditations from 1940. And so I always recommend to everyone to read these two books, Victory Over Vice and The Seven Virtues. Again, Sheen taking the seven last words and applying them to both the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues of how we can overcome the seven deadly sins by meditating on the seven last words. A simple example, those who struggle with the sin of anger, uh, Fulton Sheen directs us to the first word from the cross, Father, forgive, for they know not what they do. We need to forgive. For the sin of gluttony, uh, he says the fifth word from the cross, I thirst. We're, we're, we're hungering for things of the world, sometimes food and drink, but sometimes sports and entertainment. Yet our Lord is saying, I thirst for a relationship with you. Uh, again, he's crying out to us 
the shepherd looking for his sheep. And so we can meditate on that and, of course, be given a grace to overcome that sin. And so, again, uh, I, I don't have enough time to uh, share with you all of these lessons, but I do want to recommend that you uh, purchase uh, at some time those two books, uh, Victory Over Vice and The Seven Virtues, and they're available, of course, um, on Amazon. Uh, again, Amazon's all over the world. I know everybody, I always try to say shop local if you can, uh, but you'll always find things on Amazon. So again, I put together a book a number of years ago where I combined the two books together, Victory Over Vice and The Seven Virtues. And again, you can find that on Amazon all over the world. So uh, again, I'm not trying to do so much of a shameless plug, but trying to uh, point you in the right direction that Fulton Sheen gives us really good counsel when it comes to overcoming sin and practicing virtue. All right. Now, speaking of counsel, I want to share with you uh, Sheen's catechism lesson uh, here on sin and penance. And so without further ado, may I present to you one of the greatest communicators of our time, especially in teaching the faith, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he speaks on the topic of sin and penance. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In the last lesson we spoke about sin in general and said that from the natural point of view it was a violation of the law of God. Every sin has a triple effect. First of all, it divides a person from himself. Two, from his neighbor and three, from God. First of all, from himself, because it makes the soul a kind of a battlefield. After a sin, one always feels like a menagerie full of wild beasts. Then sin also alienates a man from his neighbor. A man who cannot live with himself cannot live with his neighbor. That is why Cain, after his sin, asked, Am I my brother's keeper? Finally, it estranges us from God and gives us a sense of, of loneliness. In some way, we dam up and block up the mind which ought to have communion with God. And the result is that all of the scum and the flotsam and jetsam of life are crowded back upon us. Now, sin is of two kinds. It can be mortal or venial. Here we speak of personal or actual sins. The difference between the two is very easy to understand. We speak of someone receiving a mortal wound in the physical order. Namely, it is one that kills him. If, however, he is not seriously wounded, that would be equivalent to a venial sin. Now, in a mortal sin, and for those who are in the supernatural order, grace is killed. Divine life is extinguished. That is why, in the supernatural order, a mortal sin is not just a violation of the law of God, it is a crucifixion. As we read in the epistle of the Hebrews, would they crucify the Son of God 
a second time. Sin is a second death. Because it's the death of divine life. It is very much like a tree being blasted with lightning. When we fall into mortal sin, we lose all of the merits that we gained before, though we can regain them after a sacramental confession, just like a tree can revive in the springtime after a very hard winter. A venial sin, we said, is one that does not kill the divine life, but just simply wounds it slightly. It is something like the tensions between friends that endanger the friendship but never completely break it. But really when one loves, one does not make so much a distinction between mortal and venial sin. It is quite wrong to say, oh, is it a mortal sin? If it is, I will not do it. If it is a venial sin, I will. Really, when you love someone, you never make any distinction between a mortal and venial sin. A husband, for example, does not make any distinction, if he loves his wife, of slapping her face, giving her a bloody nose, or biting her ear, or slitting her throat. All of them are quite inconceivable to him, simply because he loves her. Coming more precisely to the definition of original sin, in order that there be, or I mean mortal sin, not original, in order that there be a mortal sin, three conditions must be fulfilled. One, there must be grievous or serious matter. Two, there must be serious and sufficient reflection. And three, there must be full consent of the will. First, there must be grievous apple. Uh, hmm, grievous apple. Grievous matter. The reason I said apple was because I was going to use the word apple as an illustration. For example, if you stole an apple from a neighbor's orchard and he had dozens and dozens of trees, that would not be grievous matter. But the grievous matter, you must not think, must always be a sin of commission. It can be a sin of omission, like not going to Mass on Sunday. And second, there must always be sufficient reflection or full advertence to what one is doing. If, for example, you are visiting a neighbor, a friend, and you do sleepwalking, during the sleep, you break a Ming vase. I say vase because it's very expensive. It were, if it were cheap, we would call it a vase. There's no advertence to that. Therefore, there cannot be a mortal sin. If you eat meat on Friday, thinking it's Thursday, there's no mortal sin. I remember once going into the lunchroom at the Grand Central Station and I said to the waiter that I wanted a hamburger. He said, the hamburger isn't good today. Well, I said, then give me a lamb chop. Oh, he said, I wouldn't recommend the lamb chop either. We're not very proud of these lamb chops. Then it suddenly dawned on me that he was trying to advise me that today was Friday. I had forgotten that it was. 
if I had been served the meat by someone who was not so kind to me, it would not have been a grievous sin. Then two persons who are suffering from manian phobias and the like lack full advertence. Finally, there must be full consent of the will. Fear and passion and force can diminish consent. I said diminish, but they do not destroy it. Now, it's not always easy to see whether to know whether or not one has fulfilled these three conditions, and the best way to do it in confession is to confess them as dubious and then ask the priest for his judgment. In mortal sin, therefore, there is a double element, a turning to preachers and also a turning to God. In order to remedy all of the sins and to atone for all of the sins that have been committed since baptism, our blessed Lord has instituted the sacrament of matter that we submit in that sacrament constitutes our sins and we submit it to the judgment of the church and then there is the other side of the sacrament which is the words of the priest when he absolves us he says they in in Diego te absolvo satatis tuis in omni patris fidi et spiritus sancti amen I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son Amen. Our Lord, and not the Church, instituted the sacrament. It did not exist in the Old Testament, though in the Old Testament there was an acknowledgement of sins before God. When Adam had eaten the forbidden fruit, God said to him, Hast thou eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God knew that he had. Why did he ask? In order to elicit a confession. God said to Cain, Where is thy brother? Tried again to elicit a confession from Cain. By the way, Cain refused to go to confession because he answered, Am I my brother's keeper? Through the Old Testament, too, every sinner had to bring a sin offering, which was burned in public as if to publicly admit his guilt. John the Baptist heard the confession of sins. Now, all of these were merely types of the sacrament to come, because forgiveness is possible only through the passion and merits and death of our blessed Lord. Our blessed Lord certainly had the power to forgive sins. And he did. Remember the man who was let down from the roof? The man who was sick of palsy? And our blessed Lord said to him, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And the Pharisees that were standing about said, Who can this be that he talks so blasphemously? Who can forgive sins but God only? They were right. Only God can forgive sin. 
But how did he do it? He did it through a human nature. Now God can communicate that power to other human natures. If he communicates that power of forgiveness to his church, he conferred it on Peter when he gave him the power of keys. And he said to Peter, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That power that was given to Peter alone is ratified in heaven. But our blessed Lord also gave to Peter and the apostles and extension of that power. Only to Peter were those words said. But to Peter and the apostles after the resurrection, our blessed Lord said, as he breathed on them, as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. When you forgive men's sins, they are forgiven. When you hold them bound, they are bound. It's very clear here that our blessed Lord who was saved, that all power was given to him, he now passes on to them. And the very words that he used to Peter and the eleven or to his church implied hearing confessions. Because if they did not know if they did not hear confessions, rather, how would they know which sins to forgive and which sins to retain? This is possible only because they could make a judgment on the material that was given. You may ask, well, why did our Lord institute a confession in the telling of sins? Why shouldn't we bury our head in our handkerchief? And tell God we're sorry. Try it with a traffic cop sometime. There's no test of sorrow if you are the judge. Just suppose we did that for every other court in the world. What would happen to justice in our country if all judges and courts and so forth when they had murderers and thieves and dope addicts before them, handed out Kleenex. Sin is pride. And the telling of it is a humiliation and therefore a reparation for the sin. Furthermore, in the natural order, does not a hurtful thing hurt more if it is shut up? A boil, a tooth that aches. We lance boils. Why? In order to release the pus. So our Lord said he would lance souls in order to release the evil that was in. And it does not nature also suggest that as soon as the stomach takes into itself any foreign substance, 
something that it cannot assimilate for the general good of the body, it throws it off. The soul, too, has that instinct. It wants to throw off everything that is harmful to it and its destiny. From another point of view, when a sin is avowed, it loses its tenacity. It is seen as it is in all of its horror. If we suppress a sin, and how many are doing that today, it comes out in complexes. There is a normal way for sin to come out, just as there is a very normal way for toothpaste to come out of a tube of toothpaste. Now suppose you keep the cap off and you squeeze and squeeze the tube. Where is the paste going to come out? You do not know. But in any case, it's going to be messy. Now when we keep the cap on our soul and do not allow what is in us to come out as it normally should, when we suppress guilt, then it begins to come out in a thousand curious ways. And they are all abnormal. God was very merciful in instituting the sacrament. But you may ask, very well, but why should I confess my sins to a priest? Maybe he's not as holy as I am. That could be very true, because we hear the confession to many saints. But though you are holier than the priest, you have not more powers than the priest. You may be a far better citizen than the mayor, but he has powers which you do not have. Our blessed Lord gave the power to his church, did not give it to people. That is why a priest is the authorized minister of the sacrament. And furthermore, it is not the priest who absolves. A man cannot forgive sins. The priest in the sacrament is only the instrument of Christ. He gives and loans our Lord his voice. It is Christ who forgives, and the words of absolution means, I, Christ, absolve you from your sins. And furthermore, why be ashamed to confess the sins to the priest? He's bound by what is called the sigillum, or the seal of confession, because he is only the instrument of our Lord. The sins that he hears are not his own. They are not a part of his knowledge. He merely, in this instance, was the ear of Christ. And he is under the... He may not divulge any sin that you confess, even under pain of death. Suppose I kept money in a drawer here in my desk. And every day somebody came in and stole some money out of the drawer. Then that person came to confession to me. I could tell that person to return the money because there must always be a, uh, a validation of that which was wrong. But because I learned something in the confession, 
namely that that person stole out of my desk, I would never again be allowed to lock the door and shut the door. So none of your sins will ever be told, nor can we even speak to you about them outside of confession. If you, for example, come in and say that you stole money, I could not go up to you afterwards and say, Oh, say, remember you told me about the money that you stole from that pickle factory? Did you ever return it? That information is not Then another reason for confessing sins to a priest is this. No sin is individual. It hurts neighbor. And if we belong to the mystical body of Christ, it in some way diminishes the charity of the mystical body of Christ. Every sin hurts the church. And because, therefore, every sin in some way involves the mystical body of Christ, it is fitting and becoming that a representative of the mystical body of Christ restore you again to its unity and to its fellowship. In the early church, even the penances were public. In order to indicate there was in some way in a very serious way, an injury done to the kahal, the mystical body of Christ, the church. Now let us come to the actual practice of confession. Before you go into the box, you examine your conscience. When you examine your conscience, you begin with a prayer to the Holy Spirit to enlighten it. Remember that it is only in the face of God and in particular for the crucifix that we discover our true condition. Judge ourselves not by our own standards nor by public opinion, simply by the standards of God himself. So you may examine your conscience according to the commandments is not always the best way because it reduces our Christian life to cold duties or apt to become legalistic and very calculating. We could examine our conscience in the light of virtues, but also in the light of the seven capital sins. In any case, we have to examine our sins according to their number, their kind, and their circumstances. This is a story, and it's only, only a story. One day, a group of lumberjacks of Canada came to confession. They had not been to confession in about ten years or more. They all lined outside of the box, one after the other. The first one went in. He had not examined his conscience. So he said to the priest, Father, I have committed every sin a man can commit. The priest asked, Did you ever commit murder? No, he said, I did not. That is one sin I never committed. 
Well, said the priest, now you go outside of the box and examine your conscience again. Number, kind, and the circumstances of sin. As he went out of the box, he saw the long line of lumberjacks outside, and he said to them, No use tonight, boys, just hearing murder cases. Then, too, when you confess sins, you never involve any other person. You cannot, for example, say, I was angry. But you ought to know my wife. What a lazy old gossip. Evidently, such a confession would not be sincere. Now we go into the box and begin the confession. As soon as we go in, kneel down, we bless ourselves and say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Then we state how long it has been since our last confession. Has it been three weeks? Has it been two weeks? Has it been a month? Has it been a year? Has it been any definite period of time? Suppose now we will have someone who has not been to confession in 50 years. Suppose he's 80 years old. Now what kind of a confession can he make? He cannot remember all of the, the number of sins, the like. Well, his confession might be something like this. Notice how brief it is. Father, it has been 50 years since I last went to confession. During 20 years of my life, I never went to Mass. I never frequented the sacraments. I never made my Easter duty. I did not fast. Many times a day, I took in the name of God falsely. I used it falsely. I also took false oaths in court about five times. I was disobedient in a very serious way to civil authorities twice. I assisted at abortion twice. I murdered once. I was an alcoholic for ten years. I had immodest thoughts, certainly every day for about thirty years. Immodest actions with myself many times for about ten years. While living with my first wife, I was guilty of adultery many, many times, certainly over a period of three years. While my first wife was living, I married again. So I lived in adultery for about five years. She is now dead. During this time in business, I cut corners. I underpaid my employees. I thought only about making money. I never gave to any charity, except when I was forced to, out of public shame. I particularly regret once refusing to send a hundred dollars to the Holy Father missions of the world. And I had plenty of money. I gave myself over to an excessive spirit of amusement, theaters dinners, parties. I can never recall once in my life 
never having helped anyone in distress. I never gave up my evenings once to help the church. I completely neglected my wife as regards esteem and affection. I never sent my children to a religious school. I let them do as I please, they pleased. And I became angry at them for their impiety. And now I am suffering from them. For these and all the sins of my past life, those which I do not remember, but as God sees them, I ask pardon of God and you, Father. That is a confession of a man away about 50 years. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you once again for joining me for this edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. May I direct you to our website that is simply titled bishopsheentoday.com, and we've tried out of a great labor of love just to put as much Fulton Sheen as we could find on the internet onto this website. Uh, again, over 100 of his videos from his television series, Life is Worth Living, uh, a number of his lectures. Uh, if it was, uh, again, presented by Fulton Sheen, we've tried to find it and post it on the website. And you can watch these videos absolutely free and just click on the link and enjoy, uh, again, the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen. Uh, of course, uh, the radio archives, we've been on Radio Maria now since uh, 2017 and uh, of course been sharing uh, Archbishop Sheen's wisdom all over the world and we say hello to all of our friends listening in the Philippines and Australia, the United Kingdom, of course the United States and Canada and uh, whoever may be tuning in on our uh, social media feeds on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean, uh, the list continues to grow so thank you for that. And, of course, the digital downloads are available on our website, bishopsheentoday.com. And, of course, there's this great selection of books. We've tried to make as many of these books uh, available to you. I had mentioned the book uh, Victory Over Vice and the Seven Virtues, uh, available through Amazon. Uh, but, again, I think Fulton Sheen, he wrote on so many topics. Uh, there's something for everyone, so may I invite you to uh, add a few books of Archbishop Sheen into your own personal library, and again, you can uh, source those books through bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, it's always a joy to share the faith with you through the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, and so I'd ask you to bring a friend and to share this podcast with those you know and love. And so until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.